Dear Father, we thank you so much for the entire counsel of God. We thank you for the book from beginning to end that you have revealed yourself in by means of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you with all the glory that this uh, history ascribes to you uh, from what has already occurred to what is prophetic yet to occur. We see that your glory shines from beginning to end. So we praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus, who has magnified you and glorified you. We praise you in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. Of course, we are not actually preaching through Revelation this morning, but that is the other side of the bookend of what we are looking at this morning. We're going to do an overview of Genesis 1 through 11 in preparation of studying the life of Abraham. And in order to do that, we want to understand the main thrust of what Genesis 1 through 11 has done, because it has set up a problem in history that needs resolving. And God steps into history divinely to begin solving that problem in Genesis chapter 12. J. Dwight Pentecost, who is a professor at Dallas Seminary for quite some time, said that Genesis is in fact the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And it does set the parameters for the entire prophetic future, for God's entire plan of resolving the problem of sin and of vindicating his purpose for creation to set a man on the throne of this earth. As we go through Genesis 1 through 11, we see countless names. Actually, technically you can count them, but many names that we are not going to count this morning. And each one of them we'll see will be disqualified from sitting on the throne of this earth. But that is okay because God has predestined one for glory. He has predestined his son, Jesus Christ, to sit on the throne of this earth. And this whole story of scripture is preparing that throne for Christ, preparing him for maximum glory, that we would understand our need for him, that we would lean on him and depend on him and be willingly subject to his rule on this earth. So as we turn to the life of Abraham, we see that this is just the beginning of the story. And it goes all the way through to what is still future for us, the reign of Jesus Christ on his throne over this earth. <clears throat> so Genesis 1 through 11 has been called primeval history. This is just history before history begins, because we do have a record of this history. It is preserved through the writing of Moses when he wrote Genesis, and he preserved this history specifically for the Exodus generation. So this book was written for and to Israel coming out of Egypt, about to enter into the promised land. And this, the whole uh, Pentateuch rather is, is occupied with this uh, promise that God will give to Abraham here of, of taking root in a specific land. And so we want to see why God is doing these things in Israel. As we look through Genesis again, we are going to keep in mind three different points of application. One will be the people in the history that we are looking at. It'll be Abraham for most of Genesis, and that would be the Genesis generation. <clears throat> we will also consider the Exodus generation who received this book. And then we will consider our own generation and how this does apply to us, because there are many ways in which it does not directly apply to us. But 
because this is history and because it is God's word and God revealed, God, the never changing God, does apply to us. And so as we learn and understand his character, we will see how this does have to do with us today in the church. Well, our doctrine for this morning in looking through Genesis 1 through 11 is that it is a prelude to a prelude. Perhaps the most important function of this section of scripture is to record the promise of a human descendant who will both fulfill God's purpose for creation and rescue plan for humanity. In the primeval history record, man learns about God's faithfulness and man's dependence upon God for all things. So we begin chapters 1 through 3 and the fall of man. When God created, he created for the purpose of establishing a godly society on earth. Creation was meant to be ordered. It was meant to have purpose and reason and to fill and function in that purpose. And we see that even from the very first words that he recorded. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He establishes order in time. He establishes it in space. And he establishes it in matter. Each of these three are drawing a distinction. They operate together. They must operate together. You need time for space and matter to exist. You need space for matter to exist in and time to function in. You need matter to occupy space and to progress through time. God makes distinctions. And he makes those distinct things work together. This is a very ordered creation. God is a God of order. In Genesis 1, 4 through 5, we see what he began to do with this creation. He separated the light from the darkness. This, again, is making a distinction. Many theological systems overly occupy themselves with finding similarities. God is occupied with revealing to us distinctions. And so we want to be just as careful to observe what things are separated. Because here God separates the light from the darkness. If you remember from 1 John 1, 5, we read that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This is important because this is how God designed the world to function properly. To distinguish between light and dark and to turn to him for that distinction. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Order and regularity. God made the expanse and he separated the waters which were below from the waters which were above. The waters below the heavens would be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. He is separating the waters from the land. He calls one earth and he calls the other seas. God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens and he separated the day from the night using those lights. And he ordered them for the purpose that we might observe distinctions. These would be signs for us so that we could distinguish between seasons and days and years. So that we can track God's faithfulness. So that we can look up into the heavens and see his faithfulness to us over time. God is a God who is very concerned with making distinctions. And these distinctions are clear from the very beginning of his word. And one distinction which we cannot neglect is called the creator-creature 
distinction. There is an impassable boundary between the items or creatures that God has made. The red here in this diagram indicates impassable boundaries. Humanity cannot pass out of its humanity and influence or become God. Nature the same way. It cannot pass out of its own nature and become God or manipulate God. Notice as well, humanity and nature cannot commingle. We cannot become less than humanity. Nature cannot become more than nature because we were put it here for a purpose, to rule over nature, to be distinguished from nature, to bear the image of God and to rule and represent on his behalf. But notice as well, God standing outside of humanity and nature has the ability to influence, to manipulate, to even become part of his creation. Only God towards man can rescue man. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot become God. There is a distinction between the things that God is creating. In Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and the fruit of the trees on the earth bearing fruit after their own kind. Not only has he made distinctions, but he has established them to maintain those distinctions, to be able to reproduce themselves to function, but to remain these or maintain these borders. It was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kinds, and God saw that it was good. God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Do you think God cares about the way that he has designed creation? Do you think he has structured it and ordered it in such a way that it ought to be maintained in such a distinction? These bodies are unique. Each thing that God has created, he has created it for its own purpose. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 38 through 40, we read that God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. But notice this distinction that he also makes. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. Now this is a passage in which Paul is talking about resurrection. The fleshly human body receiving from God glory in a resurrected form. Because Jesus Christ will cross that barrier into humanity. He will allow us to have a glory that is not our own. 
a glory that we're incapable of creating, incapable of bearing on our own. When Adam and Eve are planted in the garden, we see that they are naked and without shame. And then we see that they become ashamed of their nakedness, unable to bear fellowship without coverings. But that fellowship will be restored and glory will be added to them, a covering from another, which is righteousness. But we see from the very beginning that they are created for a purpose, created distinct. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So after a whole chapter of these bear fruit after their own kind, after their own kind, after their own kind, after their own kind, God here implants his image on us while still maintaining that barrier between creator and creature. He could not create a non-created being. He still endows us with glory glory over the rest of creation because we are going to stand between God and creation to rule over this earth on his behalf for his glory, subject to his will, not to enact our own will, but to enact his over creation. Notice he made a distinction in mankind as well. He made them male and female. He created them. Here is another graphic here where the red arrows show that you cannot pass that direction. Humanity cannot become God. Humanity cannot become nature. Nature cannot become God. It cannot become man, but God can influence and affect everything in his creation. And he can even enter in and he has entered into humanity to save. And this is really the picture or the whole story of scripture, how God has entered into his creation, not only to save his creation, but to maximize God's glory, to show that God is a humble God and worthy of praise. In Genesis 2-7, we see then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. He is part of the natural creation. But he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He gave him something distinct, something extra. And man became a living being. God has a purpose for man. Not only has he made him distinct, not only has he created him in a specific and distinct way, but he has given him specific structures for organizing fellowship and activity. We call these the divine institutions. And the first one that he passed to man is dominion or labor. We are to rule on God's behalf. This is an action that we are called to do, to have dominion for God. But notice God didn't just plant us on the earth and say, just go do some things. He showed them what to do. And then he told them what to do after demonstrating it himself. The Lord God planted a garden toward east, toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Well, in Genesis 2.15, God says, 
where it says rather, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. To take what God has created, what God has done, and to manage it. And to manage it for God's will. Well, God has also instilled this divine institution into the social fabric of humanity called marriage. The union of one man and one woman for the propagation of the race, but for fellowship as well. Notice that all of the other created beings were created in swarms to fill the oceans, to fill the land, to fill the air, plants to cover the ground. But he created only two humans, two people, Adam, who we call the federal head of humanity. He is the king over the human race. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Man was created for fellowship. Man was created for partnership, for working together. This is a good structure, a good thing. That man not go at it alone and work alone. Not even to work alone among his own fellow hum humans but especially not to work alone apart from God. God taught man to be a social creature so that he would understand his need for fellowship. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created two humans, but he created the second one out of the first one. All humanity has its root in the one person, Adam. Because this is how God has designed and structured the authority over this creation. To be subject to the federal headship of one man. To come under the rule of an intermediary between God and creation. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God separated these two, and then he united them once more for fellowship, and a fellowship that should not be broken. He also instituted family, generations that would succeed the previous Generations that would build and fill the earth and occupy it and spread God's godly society over the earth. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Family was part of his plan from the very beginning. And fill the earth and subdue it. In order for godly society to function, Man needs not only observable revelation from God, indirect revelation where he looks out at God's creation and sees how God has structured it and acts that way, but he needs direct revelation from God. God interprets what he has done for man. He interprets the things that man sees 
and man is dependent upon God to interpret those things. God blessed to them and he said to them, giving him, giving them his plan for creation, his structure, what he expects them to do so that there is no confusion. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. This is why God created man, and this is what he wants man to do. God said to man, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for you. What God planted on the earth days before man arrived was for his nurturing, for his sustenance. And notice, man is dependent on God bringing this growth from the ground. He's not told to work for his food here. His food is supplied. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. God has given him food and sustenance in abundance. He will not starve. He will not need for anything while he depends on God. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You see, God created man in a state of unconfirmed holiness. There was nothing wrong with man. And because God had created him and he was the direct creation from God's hand, he was perfect. But he did not have a righteousness of his own. And this would be revealed through this test. See, the problem that mankind has is not the presence of sin. That is a byproduct. The problem that man has is the absence of righteousness. That we need the righteousness of God given to us because there is a distinction between God and man, a distinction that we simply cannot cross on our own. But this test revealed that need to Adam. He cannot depend on himself. He must depend on God. Now, all that was necessary for Adam to live well in this garden and to rule on God's behalf was to be subject to God's revealed will. But he did not do that. <clears throat> we see in this God's purpose for creation revealed. God's purpose for man. He tells them exactly what he expects. He tells them why he created. And we see as we move through scripture that Everything works together for God's glory. He created for the purpose of his glory by means of man ruling, by means of his creation being subject to him willingly. But ultimately there is one man who is able to do this. And when we look into the future in Revelation chapter 4, we see this praise as God's plan for history comes to a close, as God is finally successful in planting a single man over all of creation who rules on his behalf in perfect subjection to the will of God. And so all of heaven and all the created beings of creation worship God because he is worthy. Worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. This is a reason. 
And because of your will, they existed and were created. Because God is creator, he is worthy of receiving glory. Worthy are you, speaking about Christ, to take the book and to break its seals. Worthy are you to receive the title deed to the earth. Worthy are you to stand as the federal head of mankind over all of the creation that God created. Because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. We'll come back to that in a moment because that's a very important idea here. Finally, as the worship scene in heaven reaches a fever pitch, when every created being in the entire universe has joined in, we hear worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the purpose of creation reaching its result. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea. Notice everything that God made distinct is unified here in its worship of God. And all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the scene that Genesis 1 looks forward to. God receiving glory from his creation because of his creative acts and because of his success in creation. And how he has chosen to do that is through dominion. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Fill the earth with humanity, subdue it, tame it, just as God tamed the wilderness into the Garden of Eden. So man is to tame creation into God's glory pictured on earth and then to rule over it not to let creation rule over him. And this is about to become the issue in Genesis 3. But notice even filling the earth, even this is not fulfilled until the millennial kingdom when Christ is ruling, where we see that the entire earth became like the sea on the sand shore, sea on the shore, sand on the seashore. Oh boy, don't try saying that 10 times fast. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, we see that the population itself has finally reached God's purpose for the world. Today, we have fears of overpopulation, trying to fix it on our own, wondering which group of people do we slaughter in mass. But rather, God created this earth to sustain life, for man to fill it with people, and to obey the will of God. And this ultimately will become God's glory, not man's glory. So man is to have dominion over the earth, but not unrestrained dominion. His governance over creation is to be directed by the revealed will of God in his word. 
And that is why I want to come back to Revelation 5, verse 10. Not only did he save humanity, but he has made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Do you know what a priest does? A priest stands between two parties, representing both of them. The Levitical priests being part of Israel stood between Israel and God and represented the sin and the atonement that occurs between these two parties. We have been made a kingdom and priests to God because of Jesus Christ, because we stand between God and creation. Through our new federal head, Jesus Christ, we represent God as we have dominion over the earth in the kingdom. And as part of creation, we represent the obedience of God's creation willingly to him for his glory. This is what Christ does. This is why he is worthy of all glory. Because he has fulfilled the purpose of God in creation. These three divine institutions work together to promote godly society and enable man to rule creation according to God's will. Dominion, marriage, and family. Now in God's directed governance, he told man what to do and he told them specifically what not to do as well. Because this is going to be important. If we will, or if we rule on behalf of God's will, that means not just doing what he says to do, but not doing what he says not to do. These are equal parts of obedience. He told man, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you do, you will die. So not only the prohibition, but the reason why. He has interpreted for them the issue. But in the godless rebellion that found root in Eden, the problem begins by devaluing God's word. How God had revealed his will to man, man did not pay attention, did not take it in, did not heed it. Their very purpose for existing, they squandered. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the Garden of Eden? From any tree of the garden? He didn't say that, did he? Satan has devalued God's word. He has proposed that to the woman. And the woman starts out well. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. That is what God said, isn't it? She removed freely from here. But in essence, that is what God said. The problem is, she says, but from the tree, from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. She's taking away from God's word. She's adding to God's word. Satan is changing God's word. But she understands the consequence or you will die. She's built a fence around it, trying to protect herself, but it still is changing God's word. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. 
For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The idea here is that they will become arbiters of what is good and evil. They will make that decision for themselves. They will know it intimately because they will stand as their own barometer for good and evil. But Satan simply lied here. John 8.44 tells us he is the father of lies. He is the father of all murderers. And that is what he has done right here. He put the pistol in Eve's hand and told her to pull the trigger. And she did. Because she devalued God's word. Rather than depending on God's interpretation, she submits to someone else's. She is not ruling between God and man, or between God and creation now, but between another created being and creation. Nature working backwards, working up the chain to manipulate humanity. And humanity throwing off the shackles of God. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. When God created, he looked at his creation and saw that it was good. He estimated, based on his own perfect ability to estimate, based on the calibration of his own holiness, he looks at creation and says that it levels up. Eve looks at what God had said, do not touch, and says, it levels up to my own standard. And she also saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Not only did it level up, not only was it neutral, but it exceeded. It attracted her. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Now she wants it. So she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Notice in all of these scriptures, God is never acting as a subject. In chapters 1 and 2, we see God said, God did, God made, God saw. Here, what is it? The woman saw, the woman said, the serpent said. God is absent from this picture. But it was he who created, and he created for a purpose. And here is creation acting apart from his purpose and apart from his influence. Man separated himself from God by doing this. He severed that bond of obedience between God and man. That separation is death. That is spiritual death. And spiritual death is very insidious because it works its way into every facet and every part of our being. The spiritual is first. The physical is next. Because we died spiritually, the natural consequence is that our bodies would begin to die as well. Because we had cut ourselves off from the life source, our bodies would begin to disintegrate because they were made for a purpose. They were made for the purpose of being obedient to God and for serving Him. Immediately then, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord 
or of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They heard him coming for fellowship, but they knew that they were out of fellowship. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Notice the results of sin here, his fear. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the root of fear, and what was it? Arrogance. Man and woman had become their own God, and what a terrifying thing that is. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the woman and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I heard God coming, perfect holiness and perfect righteousness, to the face of man who is now in sin. And he said, or he said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Were her eyes really opened, or was she beguiled? She ran off headlong into darkness in hopes that she might see something. But instead, she was cast into darkness, and she died. God has to punish this. His righteousness demands it. His mercy and his grace will also play a role here. But man cannot leave, or God cannot leave man's sin unpunished. So he says, I will greatly multiply your pain and your childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Rather than being partners and ruling over creation together, the one is subject to the other. But now that death has been introduced, physical death, the need for increased childbirth also enters the scene. God is going to need to counteract what man has done to corrupt nature. In order to preserve the bloodline, woman is going to have to have more children than God had originally planned or intended. And this would become painful as well. The earth, the creation, is also affected because man was the king over this. The dominion of the king is also affected by his fall. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So what God would bring growth to before, what man would never have to worry about, to be sustained by God. Having removed himself from dependence on God, man is now responsible to depend on himself for food. In other words, okay, you think you can be God? Feed yourself. That's a tall order. This is God's creation for God's purpose. Man's to serve God, subject to God's will. And now here, man is given the simple task of feeding himself by his own efforts. And it is a struggle. We see that both thorns and thistles shall grow for you. Creation had become mutated, disturbed, destroyed by man's sin. Thorns and thistles, I don't know if you've I don't know if we mentioned this when we did Genesis, but these are mutations of leaves. 
Roses did not originally have thorns, but thorns are improperly grown and hardened leaves. Corruption was introduced into God's perfect creation, and the result of that corruption is always pain and death. Now, rather than having the trees of the gardens prepared for them that God had planted, he says, you will eat the plants of the field. Genesis 1, verses 30 and 31, God gave those plants to the animals. He's going to eat like the animals. This reminds us a bit of Nebuchadnezzar. You want to be separated from God, out of your position of mediating between him? Walk on your hands and your knees and eat like an animal. Because that's what you're acting like. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. What a God Adam makes. Can barely feed himself and reminded that he is simply dirt. But God has a purpose in creation, and God's purpose cannot be thwarted by the will of man. God's will will reign supreme. And so he has introduced a prophecy, a promise of restoration, of vindication, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. There is conflict where they operated together in harmony to throw off the will of God. Here he is introducing conflict between them. Not only between the woman and the serpent, but between her descendants and his descendants. Between your seed and her seed. And he, speaking of a singular seed that would fulfill this promise, he shall bruise you on the head, a fatal blow and you shall bruise him on the heel. The seed of the woman would be victorious, though not without receiving a scar. But the serpent would be defeated. God has given us the prophecy that encapsulates the entire history of Scripture. Satan will be defeated by a man from the creation that God had made. And that one singular descendant will be successful, not only to rescue mankind from his sin, but to vindicate God in creation. Because this creation cannot pass away until God has installed a man to rule over it who is faithful to his will. But notice after these curses that man and woman received, what is their response? They've learned something. Their response is not, oh, woe is me. But they hold to God's promise. They grab onto it. And they live by this faith. Now the man called his wife's name Eve. 
because she was the mother of all living. God just told man, you're going to die. You're going back to the dirt. But what does he hold on to? The seed of the woman. Life is coming from her. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. It is introduced to them here that something will have to die to cover their shame, to cover their lack of righteousness, to cover their nakedness, and that God does it. God made garments for them, and God clothed them. This is resolving their first response to encountering God's holiness in their nakedness and shame. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The work of our hands never produces the necessary righteousness, but God's work does. God's work is perfect. God's not trying to cover a problem. He's fixing a problem and a problem that he did not create but one that the rebellion of man created. Now moving a little faster through here, we see that this promise of a seed is not only held onto in the moment, but in the future as well. And it's not just Adam's faith, but it is Eve's faith as well. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child, who is the Lord. She not only believed that she had received the promised seed, but she understood that it must be divine. That the Lord himself was going to step into creation to fix the problem of sin. Perhaps this is understanding now the nature of man. Because Adam, having been created perfect, not in a corrupt state, in a perfect environment, he failed. Eve understands something here that it takes us thousands of years to come back to, to understand as God reveals it. In fact, this was a stumbling block when Christ did arrive on the scene. They called him a blasphemer because of the very thing that Eve understood here, that the promised seed must be divine. And she believes Cain is that divine savior. But moving forward only a few verses, we see that he certainly is not. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Rather than bringing life, this seed of the woman brought death and showed that he is actually of the line of the serpent, spiritually speaking. He is subject not to the will of God, as God had before this tried to plead with him to depend on God rather than to depend on himself and be subject to sin that is now dwelling within him. So God says to Cain, now you are cursed from the ground. 
which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So for Cain, not only is farming going to be toilsome, it is going to be impossible. If you are going to separate yourself from God, to be your own God, to make these decisions, then do it yourself. I'm not bringing the fruit of the ground to the work of your hand. Of course, Cain understands the gravity of this, and he says it is too much for me to bear. And he departs from the presence of God after God promised him preservation of his life. But Cain goes off and he begins to build cities to invent industry, things that do not depend on farming the ground, but on taming humanity, on controlling other people. He builds these cities and these structures apart from God. But we see as well at the end of chapter 4 that Adam had relations with his wife again. They've lost two sons. One is wandering off in the wilderness now, banished from the land, cursed from God, and the other one is laying dead. She gave birth to a son, and she named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Notice, not in place of Cain here. She has no aspirations of this seed being the promised Savior. She's tamed her pride. She has hope in God, though. God has restored what was taken from her by the predations of sin. She understands restoration. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and called his name Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Faith did exist, and faith extended itself before the flood. And there were many descendants that came through Shem. In fact, God preserves and promises something to this line. Promises the seed, that descendant who will come through the woman. But they understand that it is going to take some time. How wonderful that God prepared ahead of time that they would be able to track these seasons and days and years to see his faithfulness over the course of history. Genesis 5 begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Generations, plural. It's going to take a bit of work here to fix this problem. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man. In the day when they were created, this is a summary of what God did when he created man for dominion, for fellowship. But when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image. Now, this will still bear the image of God because Adam bears the image of God, but it bears also the image of Adam, which has corrupted himself. He bears the corruption of sin, and he named him Seth. So in our search 
for a promised seed. We know that Adam failed. We know that he died. Seth, he died. Enosh, he died. Canaan, dies. Mahalalel, died. Jared, died. Enoch, raptured. There's something interesting, something unique here about Enoch. What did Enoch do? He did what Adam and Eve couldn't do. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God when he came to walk with them in the cool of the garden. They hid themselves from fellowship with God. Not only did Enoch here trust God, as probably many of these descendants did, but he enjoyed fellowship with God. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Hebrews comes in and elaborates this. Again, divine interpretation. This is something God does for us from time to time. And we have 66 books of divine interpretation of the world around us. And here is divine interpretation of the Old, Old Testament in Hebrews. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Through the mechanism of faith then, God took Enoch away for the purpose that death would not touch him. He was not found because God took him up. Poof, he was gone. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. This was God's doing through Enoch's faith. But faith's obedience by which Enoch walked with God. So if anyone ever tells you the rapture has no precedence in Scripture, point them right to the beginning of the book, chapter 5 of Genesis, and show them Hebrews as well. God does, on occasion, plan and effectuate a taking away of believers. Because Enoch's son, Methuselah, is going to live right up to the point where God destroys the earth. But even before that, Methuselah proves that he cannot be that promised seed because he dies. And that's the end of his story. His son, Lamech, also dies. And that's the end of his story. But here, about 1,600 years after creation, after these 10 generations of waiting for this seed line, something comes in to challenge this promise of God. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now Adam's line are being born in his image, but the sons of God were the direct creation of God's hand. The angels created on a single day. The angels saw that man, as they were producing, 
more humans, some of them were quite attractive. And possibly not even attractive to them in a physical sense, but attractive in the essence of thwarting God's will. Just like Eve was attracted to the fruit of the tree because God said no, so these sinful angels are attracted to the seed line because God is protecting it. Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Time markers here, coordinating with when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Because of the corruption of these angels, there began to be Nephilim and they continued on the earth. They bore children to them and they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Hybrids, Yes, but a corruption. Because God planned for creation that a human of his own creation would stand over this creation. Not a hybrid of angel and man. A corruption. God has to preserve his promise. So the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And this was how many years God waited from this prophecy to the point where he destroyed the earth with water. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, from the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But God brings grace before this judgment. In fact, the story of Noah is where we first see the word grace in all of scripture. And it will be consistent all the way to the very last chapter of God's word, that grace is a major theme when dealing with fallen mankind. Because Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor is the Hebrew word hen, which almost everywhere else in scripture is translated grace. Why it's translated favor here is beyond me, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he depended on that benevolent act of God towards him and not his own work to save him. We see here that Lamech lived 182 years and he became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work, from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. This man is going to give us rest from the curse that came on man from separating himself from God. Lamech believes that his son is the promised seed. And you know, there's not much to counter this from Genesis 6, 7, 8, and most of 9. As we go through this narrative, we might even be hopeful. Is this the man? Is this the man? Just as that Genesis generation was probably hopeful, watching the faithfulness of Noah Genesis 6, 9 begins, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless 
in his time, and Noah walked with God. But God has a different plan for Noah. Rather than rapturing him before the destruction, he is going to carry him through it and preserve him. Hebrews 11, 7 also talks about Noah. Once again, by faith. Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, trusting in his word and his divine interpretation of the future, in reverence he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. How did Noah condemn the world? He accepted God's distinction in salvation. On the ark is saved. Off the ark is not. God used Noah to condemn the whole world by revealing to them their rebellion against his word. Noah did preach. Enoch preached as well. The world knew where salvation was to be found, but they did not believe God. And so they stood condemned. So we see God acting through Noah just as he had through Adam with directed governance. He is telling Noah what to do, and Noah is doing it. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. He tells him, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And all of the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is God giving Noah specific details about what to do. And guess what Noah does? Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. And guess what Noah did? Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So at this point you see how Noah becomes a prime candidate, doesn't he? He is doing what God said he intended to do through man. Noah is acting in obedience, and God is faithful to deliver Noah. Notice that Noah was brought in to participate in what God was doing, but ultimately it is God that held that ark above the waters. It was God who told him how to build it. Noah had never built an ark before. God showed him how. God gave him specific revelation to instruct him so that when the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. God carried them through judgment after he had acted faithfully. And God destroyed the world. He has done this before, and he will do it again. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Everything in which was the breath of life, the spirit of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the earth. Man, animals, creeping things, birds. Only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. 
In 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter interprets world history with two major events, the flood and the tribulation. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which, through the water, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Noah sees, or Peter rather, sees this as a defining moment in, world's his, in the world's history, one that will only be topped by the return of Christ. We see here then the deference of Noah, where man in the garden looked at their situation and interpreted it for themselves and acted on their own interpretation. Here Noah in his 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, almost a year after God put him on the ark, and after seeing that the water was dried up, after looking out, he could have seen that world and said, it looks good to me, I'm going to go. But notice he waits now until the second month, the 27th day of that month, the earth is dry, but he stays in that ark. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And what did Noah do? He went out. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. So looking at this, we think Noah must be the one. But sadly, Noah is not the one. However, we are given another divine institution here. In the form of a Noahic covenant, God covenanting himself with man tells Noah, just as he told Adam and Eve, he blesses them and then he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But then he says that he is going to require from everything that takes blood, that sheds blood, he is going to require the lifeblood of that thing. If a man kills another man, his life is required for it. If an animal kills a man, his life is required for it because man is in the image of God. So whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Notice man is told to participate in this. God is not going to strike him dead. Man has the responsibility of protecting himself from the predations of evil. God has given him the right to take life for life. This is the divine institution of civil government because a government is given that power. Now we'll move very fast to this last little section, the fragmentation. Obviously with Noah here, we have great expectations. He seems perfect absolutely perfect, a prime candidate. The story can end here. God has destroyed the earth, wiped it clean, and preserved an absolutely perfect human specimen. But Noah's not perfect. And we're told that at the end of chapter 9. Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. A shameless act. At least Adam and Eve understood their shame. But here he dulls his senses, separates himself from God's covering, and lays exposed in his tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and went out and told his two brothers outside. Now we get the idea here that he was rebelling against his father. Going out and telling them because it was funny. It was hilarious to see their father in a state of undress, a state of shame, reveling in sin. Ham is a rebel. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. They restored their father where Ham reveled in his downfall. Noah is a sinner, just like every man, and that is his problem. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. This is the first thing we see Noah say. A curse against one of the lines of his sons. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died, and there ends Noah's story. There is no seed yet. But rising up out of this line of Ham, we see Satan also begins to prepare for himself a plan to once again insert himself into creation, to co-opt God's plan, to put a man subject to God's will over creation. And Satan begins to put a man subject to Satan's will over creation. Now Cush, one of the sons of Ham, became the father of Nimrod. Nimrod means rebel. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, or in the face of the Lord, or as the Lord observed. There it is, therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which we all know, and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and he built Nineveh. We all know Nineveh as well from the prophet Jonah. And Rehoboth Ur and Kalah and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Just like Cain, Nimrod becomes a city builder. He becomes a power amasser. Genesis 11.3 says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. We've seen through the Genesis account so far how important communication is. The things that God says, the things that man says, the things that the serpent says. In order to rule, you need communication. This is part of the image of God that he gave us. The ability to speak, to communicate, to encode our thoughts. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They said to one another, come, let us. This is in the imperative tense, though it includes the speaker as well. 
So rather than letting God command them what to do, as he had done to Noah, man begins, begins to command himself to be his own God. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, a reputation. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. In other words, if we don't do this, God will have his way. Right? This is the rebellion of sinful man. This is the cosmos system of Satan to undermine the will of God because that is the will of Satan. And if man is obedient to the will of Satan, then Satan has his rulers over creation rather than God. But God will be vindicated in this creation. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, and he acts in judgment to disperse mankind. God gets his way. God said, go fill the earth. And if man in his rebellion refuses to do so, God will step into nature and manipulate nature because he can, man cannot. Then the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible to them. God gave us language so that we could understand his will and so that we could affect that will over creation. But if they are going to use it to formulate and to affect their own will, a will distinguished from mine, I will confuse them and they will run headlong into darkness and confusion. Come, let us go down. Oh, the irony of God. Man commands himself, God commands himself. Guess who's going to win out, win out here? Come, let us go down and there confuse their languages so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so here, God installs yet another divine institution, one used to preserve mankind, and that is the scattering, separation, once again, of mankind. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, or confusion, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Our two divine institutions from after the flood, civil government and nationalism, these divine institutions protect mankind from evil and preserve mankind from evil so that godly society can flourish. And then we begin to move into the next patriarch, how God is finally going to step in and advance this promise of the seed. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans, just south of the land of Shinar, south of Babel, 
soon after this dispersion within about a hundred years or 200 years in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And God now acts to once again, separate Adam to draw a distinction between or Abram to draw a distinction between him and the rest of the world. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. These are all partitives separating Adam, Abram. And he gives them him the direction that he will go as well to the land, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Who is doing all of this on Abram's behalf? God. God is acting. God is giving Abram a reputation. God is giving him a promised blessing. God is going to make his descendants numerous. But there's an apparent problem here. Perhaps we wonder, has God made a mistake in this promised seed line? He has promised it to a man who is now married to a woman who is barren, who can produce no descendant. Perhaps the original readers would wait with bated breath. Of course, they know the end, but this is a moment of tension. Because how is God going to solve this problem? Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Sarai was barren. She had no child. That is where we pick up the story. How is God going to solve this problem? We meet Abram, the patriarch. And we spend about 15 chapters seeing how God resolves this problem to preserve the seed line, to step into nature and to manipulate it, to create a nation, a peculiar nation, where he will plant his king, using these divine institutions to establish godly society under the rule of Jesus Christ. So we finish here our very long message this morning with a reminder of the doctrine of Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is a prelude to a prelude. Perhaps the most important function of this section of scripture is to record the promise of a human descendant who would both fulfill God's purpose for creation and rescue plan for humanity. In the primeval history record, man learns about God's faithfulness and man's dependence on God for all things. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of your word, for the gift that we have of being able to see the beginning from the end, all of the distinctions and separations that you have made so that you and you alone can be the one who brings all things together under your Son, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all praise because he has perfected your plan for history. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.